Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. The word of God speaks to us. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the the cobra, and and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain." For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Awesome. Thanks, Savannah. Hey, good morning, guys. It's good to be with you. If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. Hey, uh, it's I missed you guys last week. I was in uh, I was at our Frontline Shawnee congregation, and uh, Pastor Ben Hill was here with you guys. And man, thanks for making him feel so welcomed. He loved it. He felt like it was family here, and I had a blast out there. We actually lost power in the nine o'clock service. And thankfully, where they meet is this old, it's the same architect that designed our downtown building, designed this building out in Shawnee, also designed the the state capitol, I believe. And so this beautiful old cathedral. So thankfully, like when they lost power, it's not like this room in here where we'd be sitting in the dark. We had this beautiful natural light flooding in. And then there was an old room that had a big, big stack of hymnals. So we literally passed out hymnals and it was like, hey, turn to page 40 and 41 in your hymnal today. Never thought I'd hear that at a frontline congregation. So we sang out of, a, out of a hymnal and then eventually the power kicked back on for the second service and it was a great time out there. So missed being with you. It's good to be back. Thanks for making Pastor Ben feel so welcomed. Um, hey, if you have a Bible, Isaiah 11 is where we're going to be. And while you're turning there, I want to say just a couple of brief things. The first is, if, if Frontline is your home, if, if you're church family with us, man, I am asking you to fully get ready to host our city for Christmas Eve. You've already heard Aaron talk about our services, 9, 11, and 1. Uh, man, I actually would love, love, love to get 12 more people to jump in and, and help us to roll out the red carpet for the city. So we need 12 more people to jump in and serve. So if you have questions about that, talk to Don Bellflower out in our lobby or Maddie Smith or Caleb Savage or anyone on our team, grab us, and and we need 12 more of you to jump in. 
And uh, especially in our 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock services, that's where we need the most help. So help us, man, this is a time not just for you to like consume. You're, you're, you are frontline. You realize that, right? You are frontline church. I'm not frontline. We're frontline. And we together are going to be hosting our city. And we just believe that God is going to plant gospel seeds on Christmas Eve that will result in people putting their faith in Jesus. Amen? We just believe that as we host the city and as we open up the Bible and as we tell people about the good news of Jesus, he's going to save people. So uh, invite friends, invite family, and help us serve. That's going to be a fun day. And then I want to say if you're here and you're not uh, church family, maybe you're new or visiting or you're not even sure what you believe, man, it's, it's an honor to have you today. Thanks for coming. And we, we actually think today will be helpful as you wrestle with what Jesus taught and, and as you wrestle with why Christians have, have hope in God's promises. So let me pray for us and we're going we're gonna to dive into Isaiah chapter 11. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to be with the people of God, to, to sing songs, to, to remind ourselves of the hope that we have in this peace that's coming. And, uh, and I, I pray today, God, where there's, there's a tension in the room around these songs, where there's tension in the room around we're singing these truths, and yet sometimes our lives, if we're honest, just don't experientially feel like this is true. And there's things that we're saying about you that are hard to reconcile with our own story. And in that tension today, I pray that you would come and you would move and you would teach us out of your word. And where there's a lack of peace, we pray that, Prince of Peace, we would meet you today. And where we need the peace of Jesus, God, we pray that you would bring it through the Holy Spirit today. Thank you for the gift that it is to be with your people and to open up your word. We pray these things in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, something really bizarre happened on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1914, on the Western Front. By this time, in 1914, the war between Germany and Great Britain had been raging. It had been bloody. The trench warfare had just been an absolute uh, disaster in many ways, tragic in many ways. And everything about being on the Western Front in this time of, of the year with the fighting, with the war, was noisy and was loud. But Christmas Eve, 1914, something bizarre happened because all of the noise started to go away, and then all of a sudden there was complete silence across the Western Front. One of the last surviving veterans of the war, he described the silence this way. He said, I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence. Only the guards were on duty. We all went outside the farm buildings and just stood listening. All I'd heard for two months in the trenches was the hissing, cracking, and whining of bullets in flight. Machine gun fire, distant German voices, but there was a dead silence that morning right across the land as far as you could see. We shouted Merry Christmas even though nobody felt merry. And soon after, what happened is as the silence went on, the Germans started singing Christmas carols in German uh, very loudly, and all of a sudden, the, the, the British side ended up responding in their own language and started singing Christmas carols back. So you've got these two sides singing Christmas carols together. And as the sun rose and as Christmas Day uh, started to kind of wake up, the, the, the Germans eventually ventured out of their trenches and laid down their arms, and they started saying in, in, in English, Merry Christmas, Englishmen, Merry Christmas, Englishmen. And everyone's wondering, like, is this a trap? Or, you know, is this like, are we all going to die right now? But the British, they end up laying their arms down, and they meet in the middle in no man's land. 
And one other soldier recounted the event like this. He said, here we were laughing and chatting to men whom only a few hours before we were trying to kill. And they start to exchange gifts and presents, some of them like candles and put them on different trees that were around and turning those into Christmas trees. They're, they're, uh, uh, one, one, there's stories of like soldiers cutting each other's hair on the other side. Like it's just unbelievable what's happening. And eventually one of the most bizarre things that happened was a really friendly game of football started to occur where the British and the English, instead of fighting each other, were playing football together. Eventually though, the sun set, Christmas Day came to a close, and the war was back on. And Alfred Anderson, he said this, he said, the silence ended early and the killing started again. It was a short peace and a terrible war. Now, here's why I bring that story up. Most of the time when that story is told, and you've probably heard this story before, but most of the time when the story is shared, it's shared with a little bit of sentimentality. Like, isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? And when I read that story for the first time, that was not my reaction. My reaction was, how tragic is that? Because this peace that they had was more sentimental than it was sturdy. It wasn't sturdy enough for them to forever lay down their arms and cease their fighting for good. It was just a sentimental brief peace in the name of Christmas that eventually was over and fighting ensued and everything went back to normal. Now, here's why I bring this story up. Because I think that if you're honest and if I'm honest, I think that sometimes this is what Christmas feels like for us. Christmas feels like the sentimental thing where we are singing songs like peace on earth, goodwill towards men, you know, mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. We sing these songs and then we attend funerals. Or we sing these songs of peace on earth, goodwill to men, and then we turn on the news and everything about our life does not feel like this is true. It sort of feels like Christians have just gathered together to be sentimental and to just, hey, could we just have one day where we pretend everything is fine and our life is fine and there's not chaos and there's not brokenness and there's not dysfunction? Can we just for one day put up lights and exchange gifts and just try to be okay? But then Christmas will be over and we're gonna go back with business as usual, and the fighting will ensue, conflict will ensue, and the peace of Christmas doesn't feel real. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but do you resonate with that at all? Maybe you'd never say it, but deep down, you just feel like, I don't know what we're doing here. Lighting candles in the name of peace, exchanging gifts, seeing it. what are we doing here? Bart Ehrman, uh, he's a, a best-selling author and scholar and an agnostic, really thoughtful agnostic. Here's what he was, he was asked one day by somebody, hey, what would it take for you, Bart Ehrman, what would it take for you to believe that Jesus really is who he said he was? Here's what Bart Ehrman said. He said, if Jesus had fulfilled his promise to bring peace on earth. See, Christians claim that Jesus came to bring peace. And the question that we need to wrestle with today in Isaiah chapter 11 is this. Is the peace of Christmas a total sham? Is it a sham or is it real? Can we trust in this promise of peace? Now, if you feel that tension at all, 
This is why Advent matters so much. We're in week two of Advent. Advent is a season in the life of the church. You know, the church keeps a calendar. And this is a season in the calendar life of the church where we remember the first coming of Jesus into the world. And we also remember and hope in the promise of his second coming into the world. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means the coming or the arrival of a king. And so here we are as Christians, we're celebrating the coming or arrival of our King Jesus, who was born as a baby in Bethlehem, and yet we're also standing in this place of hope and the coming promise of Jesus to bring peace to this world on his second coming. So it's a, it's a tension place that you and I live in. And then if you feel the tension while we sing the songs and light the candles and think about Christmas, that's exactly what you should be sensing. Fleming Rutledge describes this this tension, this in-between place like this. She says, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. The disappointment, the brokenness, the suffering, and the pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. And that Advent tension is, uh, that in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. And one of the things that I want to try to get us to do as the people of God is to reorient the way that we think about Christmas for just a little bit. What I want to try to get us to do with Advent is to not so much think about the birth of Jesus the first time, although we are thinking about his incarnation and we are remembering that, but I want you to start thinking about Christmas mainly in terms of what that means for what is coming for us in our world. In other words, when you see the lights on people's houses, when you exchange gifts, when on Christmas morning we, we, we read the story, when you see uh, the, the, the manger scene thrown across our city, when you sing the songs, I want you to not just think about the first coming of Jesus, but I want that to be this anchor for you where you start to hold this tension of I know what is coming for us also. I know what he did and I know what's coming for us also, and I don't know of a better place to, to, to go to help us wrestle with that tension than Isaiah chapter 11. Now, let me give you some brief context as we kind of parachute our way into Isaiah chapter 11. The book of Isaiah is landing in a very dark moment in the people of Israel's history. God's people are experiencing this book, the book of Isaiah, at one of the worst, most bleak most dark moments in their history. God had made two specific promises that he intended to fulfill that the people of Israel had eventually just kind of gone white noise on and stopped believing altogether. The first promise was God saying, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to raise up a child of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, and through Abraham's descendant, the son that's going to be born, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. That was promise number one. Promise number two was God saying, hey, I am going to raise up a king for you that's like David, but better. David was the best king in Israel's history, and yet even David failed epically and couldn't do what God's people needed him to do. And so here is God making another promise saying, hey, I'm going to raise up a king for you, and this king is going to bring a level of peace that you can't even imagine. This king is going to rule over you and the way that you long for a king to rule over you. So two promises. Abraham's going to have a son that'll have a son that'll have a son that'll bless everybody. And David's going to have a son that'll have a son that'll have a son that will also be the king that you long for. 
Well, the people of Israel, by this point in the story, had gone completely white noise on those promises. Didn't believe it. We don't think God's going to do what he said he was going to do. Those promises were a long, long time ago. We can no longer trust in God. So what the people of Israel choose to do is they choose to actually trust in the most powerful nation on the planet at the time, the Assyrians, and the Assyrian king to be the king that they're really going to look to for hope. So they're saying, we can't trust God anymore. We're not going to look to God's promises anymore. We are going to take matters into our own hands, and we're going to trust the king of Assyria to be for us what God cannot be trusted to be for us. And friends, what happens to them in this story is what happens to you and I whenever we reject God and trust in other kings or other people or other things for hope and for security. It goes terribly. It goes poorly. In fact, the story in, in, in the life of Israel is that the very nation, Assyria, that they were looking to for hope and for peace ended up being the very nation that invaded them and overtook them and became their greatest threat and enemy. So by the time you get to Isaiah 11, the people of Israel are in a dark place. Prior to this, God describes the people of Israel like this luscious forest. In fact, I've got a picture here just to kind of help you think about the beauty of what the people of Israel were like. Like think of a, a redwood forest of just lush, beautiful, big, healthy, thriving trees. And then when you get to Isaiah chapter 10, this is the scene. The scene is a field of chopped down trees and, and now there's just stumps and even the stumps have been set on fire. So there's no life here. This is dark. This is the people of Israel at their darkest. And I want you to think about your own life. Does that feel sometimes like what life feels like? Dark, lifeless, I don't see a way out, no hope. All right, with that in mind, Isaiah 11 verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Two quick things that I want you to see. Here's the first one. I want you to see the promise kept. The promise kept. In the middle of this very bleak, dark picture where the people of Israel are this burned out forest with, with, with just all these stumps that have been set on fire, no life at all, there's all of a sudden this beautiful promise, this picture of this little green shoot or this little plant coming out of the stump that's been burned out. Now, what, what is this promise about? Well, it's actually a promise about God bringing this son of Abraham and this king from the line of David. Look, look at the details of this promise. This is unbelievable to me how biblical prophecy works in the Old Testament. First, it says that he will be a shoot, notice, from the stump of Jesse. Jesse. So this is going to be a son of Jesse, just like King David. He's going to come from a really obscure family. And I love that it says son of Jesse, not son of David, because nobody really knows who Jesse was. He's just kind of a random guy, right? But everyone knows who King David is. But David came from Jesse. David came from this very obscure family. God is saying, one day, from a very obscure family, I'm going to send this promised son. In addition to that, he says he will be a branch from Jesse's roots, a branch from Jesse's roots. Now that word branch in Hebrew is netzer, and it literally means Nazareth. Nazareth, the name Nazareth, is branch in Hebrew, right? Which is fascinating because this is not just gonna be a son who comes from a very obscure family in the line of King David, but he's also going to be from 
Nazareth. Is this starting to sound familiar at all? Then keep going. Look at verse 2. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So, whoever this son, this king is, he's going to be spirit anointed. The Spirit of God is going to rest on him. In addition to that, he's going to be a king like no one else has ever seen. He'll be sinless, he'll be righteous. Look at verse 3. It says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This, this son of Jesse coming from an obscure family in the city of Nazareth, this spirit-anointed king, he's going to be unlike any other king of Israel because this king, this king is going to be perfectly sinless and righteous. He's going to do only what is good and what is right. His delight is in the fear of of the Lord. Israel's never seen a king like this king. And then finally, notice this bizarre, interesting thing that's said in verse 10 about this son of Jesse. It says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, contrast verse 1 to verse 10. Verse 1 says that he's going to be a shoot from Jesse. But verse 10, did you catch it? Says that he's going to be the root of Jesse. Now, I, I don't know much about how plants or agriculture works, all right? So just let me throw that out on the table. There's a lot I don't know. But what I do know is that a shoot comes from a root, and a root is the source and foundation for any sort of shoot that comes out of it. So how can this son, how can this king be both shoot and root at the same time? How can this be a son of Jesse and also the very source of Jesse? How does that work? Well, friends, you know the answer already. If you grew up in church, this is the answer. This is the Sunday school answer. Are you ready? The big unveil. Who is this? This is Jesus that we're talking about. Jesus is the long-awaited son of Jesse who came. He was from Nazareth. He's known as Jesus of Nazareth. And actually, we read in Matthew 3.16, when we came out of the waters of baptism, the Spirit of God rested on him. And we see Jesus live the sinless life where he trusted in his Father and only did what was right all along. And we also know because of his incarnation that this is not just a human child, but this is God becoming a human child. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He is both the son of Jesse and he's also the source of Jesse. Friends, Christmas is God coming true on this promise in Isaiah chapter 11. Now, here's what's wild. You ready? What's wild is that from the time God made this promise in Isaiah chapter 11 to the time he fulfilled this promise, guess how much time had passed? Over 700 years. And this is what I want you to realize. God made a promise, and it was not, their story was not up and to the right until this promise was fulfilled. God made a promise in Isaiah 11, and it was absolute darkness and dysfunction and brokenness from Isaiah 11 from those 700 years until Jesus came on the scene. And this is really hard to wrap your head around, but I want you to imagine being the people of Israel, being God's chosen people in the Old Testament, and reading this promise in Isaiah 11, what would you think and feel? 
What would you think and feel about this promise? I mean, in 722, the Assyrians come in and crush Israel and kill a ton of people and drag a bunch of them off as slaves. In 538 BC, a large numbers of God's people, uh, sorry, Babylon in 586 attacks and destroys the temple and brings a ton of those people as slaves into Babylon. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great attacks God's people and he puts them under Hellenistic rule. And then in 63 BC, about 300 years later, the Roman general Pompey invades Jerusalem, desecrates the temple, and takes over the people of Israel again. I mean, the history will tell you from Isaiah chapter 11 to the coming of Jesus on the scene was one nation after the other, after the other, after the other, coming in and invading Israel and taking over God's people, killing a bunch of them, dragging a bunch off into slavery. So just imagine, imagine being in Babylon as a slave, reading Isaiah 11. You're like, where are you, God? You made this promise about the son of David, the son of Abraham. Where are you? Because everything about my life feels like you can't be trusted. And yet, friends, God behind the scenes was working in history the whole time. There was never a moment where he was stressed. There was never a moment where he was like, you know, putting his hands on his head going, I don't know what to do here. I don't know how this is going to turn out. No, God knew what he was doing. And this was his intention to actually come good on his promises. And that's exactly what Christmas is. Christmas is a lot of things, but Christmas is at least God being true to his promises. So this is the promise kept, Isaiah 11. And that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is the promise that is coming for you and for me. Now look at verse 6. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. I love this imagery here. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like, like the ox. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy an all my holy mountain, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is one of the most unbelievable and poetic and beautiful promises that God has ever given. I love this passage because this is giving us a picture of life in the world. And it's sort of like life in the Garden of Eden, but even better than the Garden of Eden because we actually know the story of brokenness. I mean, it's one thing to live in Eden. It's another thing to know that we came from Eden and then see the brokenness and the sin and the dysfunction and the chaos of our world and to have God rid the world of all of those things and to be brought back to Eden the way that God intended us to be in the first place. That's unbelievable. And that's the picture that Isaiah is promising here. Actually, what you have in Isaiah 11 is two very different but related promises. And I want you to see this. That the first five verses verses one through five, are actually God promising to come at Christmas time, to send Jesus, to come and to rescue us, to come and to to live the life that we couldn't live, die the death that we deserve to die, and rise again from the dead. And sadly, for most Christians, that's where the story of Christianity stops. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and one day we'll go to heaven when we die, the end. 
But friends, there's another promise made in Isaiah 11. And the second set of five verses gives us a promise not just about the first coming of Jesus, but about what God is going to do at his final arrival when he returns to this earth a second time. This is talking about two different arrivals of God on the scene, and they could not be more different. The first arrival is what already happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. And his second arrival, arrival is the one that you and I are waiting on in this very moment right now as we sit in this room. The first arrival was one in humility and obscurity where Jesus came as the infant son of Jesse. Not with pomp and fanfare, not the way that if I were God, I would show up and be like cracking the sky, very loud, very boisterous, like, hey, I'm God, I'm here. That's not the way Jesus did it. It was obscure, it was in silence, it was in a manger in Bethlehem. But his second coming, his second coming is gonna be full of unrivaled glory and power where the trumpets will sound, the sky will be ripped in half and Jesus will return back to this earth. And friends, every knee will bow at his arrival. Every tongue will confess. Even those knees and those tongues that right now don't submit to Jesus as Lord, you will either bow out of love and devotion or you will bow because he will force you to bow because he is the rightful king. This day is coming. Friends, in his first arrival, he came to suffer for our sins and die on a cross and lay in a grave. But his second arrival will be different. He doesn't come to suffer Actually, Jesus is going to come again to end all suffering. He doesn't come to die. Jesus comes to raise us from the dead. He doesn't come to be laid in a tomb. The second time, Jesus comes to put death in its tomb once and for all. Friends, the ancient Israelites would have read Isaiah 11, and they would have hoped and longed for this coming of Jesus in the middle of brokenness and sin and dysfunction and here you and I and what we share in common with them is that we are still longing for part of Isaiah 11 to come true, are we not? We're reading this and we're looking around at our lives just like they would have and we're saying, where are you, God? What are you up to? What are you doing? Can you be trusted? My life feels like a burned out forest. There's no sign of life. There's no sign of hope. Where are you? Can we trust you? Will you fulfill your promises. And Christmas is God loudly saying, I can be trusted. I can be trusted. The way I came, the way I came the first time, I'm coming again. And this time it'll be an unrivaled glory. And there's two specific promises that I want you to see real briefly before we close in Isaiah 11 that you and I are still waiting on. The first one is the promise, the coming promise of peace on earth. See, it's a little bit misleading, isn't it? Because we sing about peace on earth, goodwill towards men, but we, we live in a world where Israel and Palestine and violence is unfolding in the Middle East like crazy. And how do you, I mean, how do you even, I don't know how you do it. I, I, when I look at the news, I'm not even sure how we can fathom the level of death and brokenness that's happening over there. You look at what's happening in Ukraine. You look at what's often going totally under the radar in Africa. And friends, that's just to mention the big global stuff, not to mention the stuff in this very room right now, the pain that you carry, the, the stories, the people that won't be seated around your table this Christmas or the people that are and, and that their very presence makes it painful. The stories that are in this room, man, there's, there's a felt lack of peace 
And we're sitting here going, how is it that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? How is it that, that this, this peace on earth, goodwill that men think can be true when you look at our world? And that's because we're still actually waiting on the Prince of Peace to bring peace in its fullness. This is the promise that's coming. We wait on it. There is coming a day where peace will hit your life. And not a flimsy peace. Not peace as in the absence of war. Not peace as in I went to my counselor enough and I, I took enough medicine and now I have enough internal peace. Not those things. I'm saying a peace that will reorient your entire existence is coming for you. In fact, the Hebrew word for, for peace is shalom. Tim Keller defines it like this. Shalom means complete reconciliation a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. That's what's coming for you. This lion laying down next to a lamb, they're young, getting along. I mean, this is God giving us this picture of when he returns, he is going to do something to this world that totally changes your very existence. Peace is coming. And I know right now you carry tragedy, you carry suffering, you carry pain, you carry loss, you carry sickness, you carry uh, uh, doctor's uh, statements about what's happening in your body. You carry those things now, but there's coming a day where such a peace will hit your life and hit this world and hit this earth that you will even struggle to remember the pain. Think about that. You will literally like, oh yeah, I remember that I remember that's, man, that was so long ago when I had tears in my eyes. That was so long ago when that loss happened. That was so long ago when that pain, you will struggle to remember because of the peace that is coming for you. And that leads me to the second promise I want you to notice, which is the coming promise of transformation, not annihilation. Transformation, not annihilation. God's long-term vision here is not to rip you off of planet Earth and take us up to heaven where we're gonna live in some weird existence up in the sky forever and ever and ever. No, God is doing something not just to bring peace between us and him and us and each other, but God is doing something to bring peace to this very planet Earth, that peace is coming to the Earth. Did you notice that instead of God getting rid of lions and bears and poisonous snakes, Instead, what he does is he completely transforms their very nature. Look at this in verse seven. I love it. The cow and the bear shall graze. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but bears don't graze. Uh, can you imagine driving through parts of western Oklahoma and you're like, and there's the cows and there's the bears. Then they're just grazing together. That's what's coming for this world. Their young shall lie down together. And I love this. The lion shall eat what? Straw like the ox. Right now, lions are terrifying because they will devour you, but there's coming a total transformation of God's good earth and everything that's inside of it that even lions, their very nature will be changed. Now, if you're like, is this literal? Is it figurative? I don't know that it matters. The point is that God is doing something to take all that is deadly and scary and harmful and he's totally changing it and we will have a type of peace and transformation that you cannot even wrap your head around. That day's coming where babies are going to have lions that they lead on a leash, where babies are going to be playing next to an adder's den. I remember I was in Bentonville with my family over the summer, and uh, 
This will tell you like everything you need to know about my wildlife experiences. I, I love being outdoors. I love being in nature. I'd prefer to be outside as opposed to being inside. Grew up outside. But there's a lot about animals that I don't know, and I like to pretend like I know a lot, you know? So we saw the snake, and my son, I'm trying to instill in him a sense of courage and bravery, and he's like, can I touch it? I'm like, yeah, go for it, man. It's, it's a snake. It's not going to kill you, right? And so he's like reaching down to touch it, and he's like, is it poisonous? I'm like, no, that is not a poisonous snake. That's That snake right there, I mean, if anyone knows, I know, that is not a poisonous snake. So he's reaching down to touch it, and then this old man came up next to us, and he goes, hey, that's a copperhead. And I was like, bear, get away from the, that's a copperhead, ah. And my son, if you don't know, my son's name is Bear, so now I'm yelling bear in the woods. I mean, the whole scene is chaos. Hey, there's coming a day, though, where he can just play with copperhead snakes because they won't hurt him. And friends, friends, if that sounds silly or trite to you, what in your life is bringing you harm right now? What in your life is bringing you pain right now? What in your life is causing you to have tears in your eyes right now? Because transformation is coming. Peace is coming. In fact, friends, we can read about a baby playing with snakes because Christmas is a story about another baby who came to crush the head of one. Jesus came to crush the head of of the serpent who actually unleashed brokenness on our world. He came to do a death blow to our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death so that you and I could be forgiven, have peace with God, and have our entire world transformed by his power. That's what Christmas is all about, friends. That's why we string up lights, because no amount of darkness has the last say. That's why we exchange gifts, because God has given us the greatest gift of this promise of peace to come. This is why we do what we do at Christmas. This is why we hope. This is why we have Advent, so that we can look at our lives and we can long for this day that is coming. So where do we go from here? I just want to ask you, where are you struggling today to trust in God's promise of peace? Where are you struggling? Where do you feel like it's a million miles away and and, and God can't be trusted? Where do you you just kind of mindlessly go through the Christmas motions, but you don't really believe that this is real? Those are invitations from God to remember that as sure as that baby laid in Bethlehem, that's as sure as this God is going to come through on his promises. You can hang your hat on it. This day's coming. In addition to that, I want to invite you in the season to embrace peace as a fact that informs the way that you feel. God has brought peace. With God, we have peace today. And he is bringing peace, peace with one another and peace with our world. That should change the way that you live right now. Because you don't live in a utopia where if we just try hard enough and humans you know, pull together, we can do enough good to fix this thing. And we, all, we also don't live in a dystopia where things are just going to go to hell in a handbasket and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an existence devoid of God. We live in God's world. And yes, there's sin, yes, there's brokenness, but the day, the day, the day is coming. And that changes the way that we relate between now and then. And then finally, I want you to remember what God is up to as you wait. In this in-between, what is God doing? Is he just sitting up in heaven, twiddling his thumbs, totally unaware of the chaos down here? What is God doing? Well, I want you to remember, look at what 2 Peter 3 says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. He's saying, remember Isaiah chapter 11 
and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason why God is delaying is not because he doesn't care, it's because he does. It's because he does. He's waiting because he longs for you, for us, for all people to come to a knowledge of his love and his mercy. So I just want to say, if you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I'm, I'm calling to you. I'm asking you. He is waiting. He is longing for you to turn from sin and place your faith in him. This is why he's being so patient, because he wants you to be with him when he brings this type of peace and transformation. So I want to invite you, would you stand with me?